It is 5 a.m. on the dot, September the 21st. I want to point out to everybody, if you if you do not know this, tomorrow marks the day where Frodo Baggins started his long journey to Mordor. He didn't realize he was going to go straight to Mordor or how it was going to look like or anything like that. He had to figure it out as he went. It was that, but it was the day, a Thursday, September the 22nd, when he and his little hobbit friends left Hobbiton to go start what would be the most famous journey other than Bilbo Baggins' journey. Now, you just hear my voice, and that is for a reason. I'm by myself as we speak. Danny is at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class. He should be here in about an hour. Um, is since it's the 21st, my daughter, my second daughter is due the 26th. It looks like it could, she could come the next few days or so. So I, it, I may be off the podcast for a few weeks. So I, I understand that this is probably my last podcast, uh, for some time. And so I want to get the most bang for my buck try to get in an hour and a half or so still we're going to cover pilgrim's progress still when danny comes today we're covering chapter five we're covering a few characters that i think are suitable for our day that are relevant for us especially people that like theology there's a character that i'm going to try to discuss with danny when he comes named talkative just the conviction that i've got from that to not be a talkative this episode is going to release, I believe, the 21st of October, so it's going to be a full month on the dot that it releases. Now, as I am speaking right now, Friday's podcast has not come yet. Friday's podcast is the debate that my friend and I had on theonomy. It was an official debate. It was moderated. I figured out very quickly that debate is challenging to be bound by time, to be bound by certain rules and things like that are beneficial. They're needed, but they make things a little bit more difficult for some reason. But I had a good time. It was fun. What I want to do until Danny comes is to go over what I humbly believe are the three fatal flaws of theonomy. Now, Um, My biggest regret in the debate is that I did not get to get to these. uh, I was not able to get to these points succinctly, clearly. I did not give a good summary of these points in the debate. They did come out um, other than the third point that I'm going to share. Let's see. The first point did come out at the very end. It should have came out sooner. I should have asked it in a QA and a time. Should have came out. Or in my opening statement, just ran out of time. I should have managed that better. Um, point number two, natural law did come out quite often, but maybe it is not as clear as it needs to be. And I just want to give a succinct understanding, a succinct, um, clear train of thought with why I believe that these three points are detrimental to the theonomic system. Now, I also want to point out that I'm not going to be 
offering any sort of response to the debate that I had. I feel like that would be unfair to my opponent. So I'm going to do my best that if I do respond to any interlocutor, meaning somebody that is disagreeing with me, it's actually uh, my assumed uh, the assumption that I have that the anonymous would disagree with me on. I'm not going to um, rehash out anything in the debate. I'm not going to misrepresent or even speak for Matt in this. That would be just highly unfair to him. Um, but I've I've read theonomy. I've listened to enough theonomists. I'm I understand the context of theonomy enough to be able to do this without misrepresenting him when I do speak um, on a theonomic position. So here we have it. Having to blow my nose, I'm sorry. Theonomy. Theonomy essentially means God's law. I'm not going to give a full definition, and I'm not going to give a full um, explanation of the system of theonomy. In large part, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this and if you're interested in this, you already have some basic understanding of theonomy. Um, it means God's law. I, I've made clear I am for God's law. I'm a confessional Christian. I consider myself a Reformed Baptist. The Reformed Baptists have a good chapter on the law of God and its use for us. I am not an antinomian when I'm debating against or wrestling with theonomy. Now, I think that's where an issue arises, that uh, there's a system that has such a broad title that it can be misleading to people. And you'll even hear theonomists who know better say things like, well, God's law, theonomy, of course I love God's law. Then, of course, I'm a theonomist. Why would you not want to be? I think that can be misleading. I think we critique other systems that have broad definitions, broad terms for a description of the system, so we shouldn't do it ourselves. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get too deep into that. Theonomy. Now, the, the heart issue, the heart of the debate between a Reformed Baptist or a Reformed Presbyterian, just let, let's just say a confessional Christian and versus the theonomist is the is the question that I've debated in an earlier podcast that you can listen to has the mosaic civil law ceased and if it has ceased how so a theonomist essentially says no it has not ceased whereas a confessional Christian you can read it for yourself in the 1689 in the Westminster confession that the Civil law has ceased, that only the moral use of it has not, that the moral use of the civil law is still binding today. That's the heart of the issue. Now, what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing this as I go, I'm seeing this for sure after the debate, that that question brings up deeper things to wrestle with. It's not as simple as just answering that question. Well, no, the civil law has not ceased. Or, well, yes, the civil law has ceased, this and that and the other. It brings up three things, I believe, I, the, which 
the third point that I'm going to bring up is uh, sort of getting away from the civil law and is actually related to the first point, and that's corporate punishment. You can read men such as Greg Bonson. You can read some modern um, living men. You can check out Cross Politic. You can check out other places, Jeff Durbin, which, by the way, I'm thankful for all of these men. I would work alongside of them. And I'm not necessarily making war with theonomy. I disagree heavily with theonomy. I'm not making war with it. One of my best friends is a theonomist. It's not... It, it it can get heated. It hasn't gotten heated with me, and it, it will not. But it's not a thing necessarily to divide over, but it is something to take seriously. You ask that question, and there is deeper things that underline the issue. Has the civil law ceased? I give the answer that the civil law has ceased because... I believe that the confessions do that, but ultimately the scriptures do that. Now, we're going to get into three three things, uh, three issues that theonomy makes, three problems, three mistakes that theonomy makes to arrive at the positive that civil law has remained, that it is still binding, that it has not been abrogated in any way. And the, the point number one is... Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, for those who are listening who are not too familiar with um, academics, theology, uh, fancy words that we'll use when we're talking about theology, hermeneutics essentially means interpretation. It's a fancy word for interpretation. It is a system that somebody uses to interpret the scriptures. The better the hermeneutic, the more consistent the hermeneutic. To start with, if you're going to have a good hermeneutic, it it, at the very least has to be a consistent hermeneutic. That's step number one. And that is what we have with hermeneutics. Now, I believe that confessional Baptists, confessional Presbyterians have a good hermeneutic. Um, Humbly, I believe that the theonomist position does not have a good hermeneutic. There's some inconsistencies that happen. Okay, Um, I forgot my notes at home, so I'm going to do the best that I can to keep my train of thought going um, in a in a straight line on a straight train track. I believe that theonomists have inconsistent hermeneutics. So to begin, theonomists will say. That the civil law is binding. Now, there's two different directions that I see a theonomist can go in here. Sometimes they may disagree with each other in their same camp across the board in hermeneutics, or sometimes they're just using different terminology to speak the same thing. You might have a what we hear of as a general equity theonomist. Now, I'm not going to define all of General equity, I I try to get into that with my debate. Uh, A general equity theonomist is an inconsistent theonomist. Here's why. Because they employ a hermeneutical system, uh, an interpretive system, to go back to the civil law. And they interpret the civil law. They're looking at the civil law, and they're essentially just finding 
the moral use of the civil law or the moral law aspect of the civil law. They're not implying, they're not applying the literal application of the civil law. When they read the civil law, they simply get the general equity. They take that general equity and they apply that general equity to today. Now, if they do that, that is fine. In fact, I would, I would agree with a lot of how they're using that. Because remember, I, my, my position, the confessional position, is not abr- or doing away with the civil law as a whole. We still read the civil law, which, again, parenthetical for those who still may not know, I'm explaining this as I'm going. The civil law is meaning the civil law of the law of Moses. You have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and then the civil law. What does the law say about civil relations in the kingdom of Israel? Excuse me for one more second. Oh, my allergies. So, they're going to the civil law. They're interpreting it. But they're not doing typical exegesis, a typical exegetical process of what we would do for a New Testament to find the application of a New Testament. And I would say loosely that they're not applying the literal interpretation or the literal intention of the civil law that was literally intended for the people of Israel. For example, when you come to an ox, what is the general equity of the ox passage mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Or a literal application of Sabbath breaking is that you literally stone someone. Um, we could go on with other other things. Civilly, there is a literally a city of refuge for those who commit manslaughter. They unintentionally murder someone and have to flee the family member of the deceased person that died in the accident. Not going to get too caught off in in all the examples of of what this would be. But you can you can hear a theonomist talk about the general equity of the law, and there's going to be much agreement with us. But a theonomist cannot consistently say that the civil law is upheld. Because if a general equity theonomist is looking at the civil law and trying to find the moral law meaning of it, trying to find the um, moral principle that goes behind it, in a sense, the, the, um, the intention of that civil law has ceased, and they are seeing that in their practice. If that is the case, then there's no debate. You also, though, have the anonymous claiming to have what is called a grammatical historical interpretation. What that usually means, and what that should mean, and um, and I'm speaking very simply here. I'm probably oversimplifying. Is that they are looking at the text itself, and they are applying the text word for word, apples to apples, for what is commanded. Now, 
uh, and that is like us looking at what Paul would would say in the book of Romans, and we see all the elements that he's using there, the elements that the elements that are applicable that are at hand. And if we deem that it is a command for us based on the text, based on the intention of the author and other steps like that, we apply that literally as he is commanded. And that is a a grammatical historical approach. We're not looking in the typology. Is this a type? Is this a symbol? Is this this or that the other that has some um, deeper spiritual meaning behind it? Or we're not looking at any of that. We're just realizing that he is speaking to us and giving us clear commands to do no changes, no questions asked. A grammatical historical approach on the civil law is the same thing. So if you're going to grammatical, historically interpret the Old Testament civil law, there is no room for general equity. There is no room for just merely finding the moral principle behind the text, understanding that it was intended for Israel, that things are different, and that the moral principle for us may not look apples to apples the way it did for Old Covenant Israel. That is okay. We're still applying the general equity. Grammatical historical approach does not leave room for that. So if a theonomist claims to have a general or grammatical historical approach, a theonomist should never lean on the general equity. But you have to look for consistency here. You'll often hear that theonomists say that they have a grammatical historical approach, that they are uh, applying literally uh, what the meaning of the text says. But then they will lean on general equity, or then they'll say something like this. Well, we just have to figure out how to apply that text today. We, we, what that looks like for us, meaning what, that, what the civil law we're dealing with at hand looks like for us, we have to figure that out. Well, no, you should not have to figure that out. It doesn't depend on you figuring out how it applies for your, for your context or your culture you have no more room for general equity if you have a grammatical historical approach. If you have the grammatical historical approach, you can't say, well, we just have to figure that out. Instead, you simply do exegesis of the text. Now, there are passages in the scriptures that are harder to interpret than others. Not when it comes to law. Not when it comes to the civil law. When you read the civil law, the, the law that the Lord gave to Moses for the people of Israel is pretty cut and dry. It's pretty clear. So if you're a theonomist claiming to have a grammatical historical approach, there's nothing to figure out other than simply doing exegesis. Now there's a sign, though, of inconsistency, an inconsistency with hermeneutics. Now, if you pick up a theonomy book, you're, you're probably going to pick up Greg Bonson's theonomy book. He's, he's maybe, I don't know, but it seems like he is the front-runner leading figure of the theonomy movement today. You'll read a phrase in Greg Bonson's book or hear it from other theonomists that goes along the lines of upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. Upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. That 
is a declaration of hermeneutics. That is a declaration of an interpretive system. When a theonomist is saying, upheld unless expressly stated otherwise, they are showing their cards for how they interpret all of the Bible, but also especially the New Testament. And here's where we get to the nitty-gritty of hermeneutics and the issue of hermeneutics when answering the question, has the civil law been upheld or abrogated? When you read the confession on the law, the reason that the confessors, both Presbyterian and Baptist confessors with the 1699 and the Westminster, the reason that they can say in chapter 4 of, or chapter 19, paragraph 4, that to the people of Israel, God gave various civil laws which expired together with the state of Israel, not obliging, meaning not obligating them now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. The reason that the confessors can say that is because they have a hermeneutical system to look back on the civil law with. And they're quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, 9, and 10. So when they look at chapter 9, verses 8, 9, and 10, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow and hope that the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now the confessors, both Presbyterian and Baptist, did not look at that verse and say, Oh, that verse alone abolishes all of the civil law, that it abrogates all of the civil law. That just would not make sense. The confessors understood that the apostles had a hermeneutical system developed that we should imitate. That the apostles looked at the Old Testament when they read the civil law, and they understood that the civil law had ceased, that it was intended specifically for Israel, but that it had general uses, that it had general moral or general principles, general equity that applied to us. Now, there's, there's two different things that you can do. You have two options here. You can either, number one, say upheld unless expressly stated otherwise, or you could see that the apostles had a had a, a system of interpretation that we as Christians are also to use. Now, if you choose the former, what you have to do is you have to say, well, every single civil law that is not mentioned in the New Testament or elsewhere abrogated, I'm going to hold to that law. And it doesn't matter, you know, where we find it in the law, if it's a moral law, civil law, uh, which they're going to say that the ceremonial law as a whole has been abolished by the uh, work of Christ accurately. I would agree with that. But when you see it tack for tack, line by line, unless it is, unless one line in the civil law has been done away with somewhere else, we're going to uphold it. 
But if you're holding to that, you then have to reject that the apostles gave us a system of interpretation to use when going back to the Old Testament. In other words, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. I think that that is a fatal flaw for theonomy. That is a fatal flaw for theonomy because it is it is not recognizing that Paul and Peter and the other apostles did provide us a system to use in interpreting the Old Testament. I want to give you a, a few quotes. If you're reading, if you're looking for a book on how to interpret the Bible, and especially how to interpret the Old Testament by using the New Testament, I want to encourage you to pick up G.K. Bill's book called The Handbook on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament, Exegesis and Interpretation. He gives a few quotes. I want to, um, let's see, the best one. Furthermore, if Jesus, uh, G.K. Bill says, if Jesus and the apostles were impoverished in their exegetical and theological method, and if only divine inspiration salvaged their conclusions, then the intellectual and apologetic foundation of our faith is seriously eroded. What kind of intellectual or apologetic foundation for our faith is this? Moises Silva is likely correct in stating, if we refuse, if we refuse to pattern our exegesis after that of the apostles, we are in practice denying the authoritative character of their scriptural interpretation. And to do so is to strike at the very heart of the Christian faith. Indeed, the polemical and apologetic atmosphere of early Christian interpretation also points to an intense concern for correctly interpreting the Old Testament. Now, if we have a grammatical, historical interpretation of the Old Testament, as I mentioned earlier, we must consistently interpret the literal application and the intended, initially intended application for the Israelites in our day and apply it as such there's nothing to figure out so when we come to the oxen passage you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain that being a civil law we should actually say that that certainly does speak for the ox and it does not speak for our sake but we see that the apostle tells us that that is for our sake now upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. If we have that system, then we say, okay, well, that line of the civil law is done away with, but the rest are not. That is wrong. That is a fatal flaw of theonomy. As Z.K. Bill has quoted, and he quoted Moises Silva, we should let the Apostle Paul's interpretation of 1 Corinthians 9 be a revelation of how he interprets all of the civil law. And we should let that be teaching and wisdom and counsel on how we interpret the civil law with the principle that is applicable to us. 
you can't have both here. You you just cannot simply consistently have both. You cannot both, on one hand, say upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. And then, on the other hand, realize and recognize that the apostles gave us a system of interpretation. You just can't have both. It's, it's not consistent. Now, if you have a grammatical historical approach... And if you say upheld unless expressly stated otherwise, you're going to come across some serious issues when it comes to seeing what the apostles had to say about the Old Covenant law. Now, we're going to start to get into the bifurcation of the law, meaning the the threefold division of the law. I'm going to reserve that for point number two, which I need to get to. I'm running out of time. But... Just for the time being, I'm I'm going to talk about the law of Moses as a whole here. Why is it that the prophets speak of the, the law in the way that they do? Why is it that David speaks of the law in the way that he does and talks about how it's gold, worth more than gold? Why is it that we see the power of the law of Moses, the holiness of the law of Moses, um, the the requirement, the fierce requirement of the law of Moses. Why do we see the Old Testament authors speak the way they do about the law of Moses? But then when we come to the New Testament authors, they speak in ways that signify that there has been a change to occur. Why is it that when we come to Acts chapter 15, we see that the apostles call the law of Moses a yoke around the neck? Why is it that the Apostle Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances have been abolished? Is it because the Mosaic law has ceased? Is it because, let's just say the law of God, has the law of God changed? Has his standard for righteousness changed? Well, the obvious answer is no. But you still have to wrestle with the fact that the apostles, and this is not uh, ambiguous, this is not mysterious, it is pretty clear, set forward pretty simply. They call the law of Moses a yoke around the neck. And they do not command the Gentiles to be taught the law of Moses. They do not command them to be obedient to the law of Moses as so many theonomists often do in their application of their theological system. In short, the answer has to do with hermeneutics. So I want to give you a a paragraph. I'm going to try to do a one to two sentence reason why hermeneutics is important in answering the initial question I asked earlier. Has the civil law ceased? The civil law has ceased. Because the apostles give us a hermeneutical system to show that the confession is right in the, in saying that the literal application of the civil law is not obligating. It is not obliging. It has expired with the people of Israel. And that only the moral use of that civil law is upheld. We can say that because the apostles said that. We can interpret the civil law that way because the apostles interpreted the civil law that way. Now, the great Baptist theologian, the 
theologian of our day when it comes to Baptist history especially, but also um, in other ways. He gives us, and he gives us the same hermeneutical obligation, the hermeneutical impetus. He says this in his Covenant Theology book. If a typological hermeneutic is the key to the theological relation of the Testaments, if it is the method of interpretation practiced by the apostles, and if it properly handles the mystery of Christ as a mystery, then we are not only allowed to use it, we are required to use it. I'm going to take that quote and apply it to this topic. We are required to use the apostolic hermeneutical system in interpreting the civil law. Meaning the phrase upheld unless expressly stated otherwise is done away with, which that in and of itself is probably, I don't, I don't want to, I want to speak superlatively here. It's, it's one of the worst parts and weakest parts of theonomy. That phrase does not let a covenant speak for itself. I'm not going to go into why we should let covenant speak for themselves. I would refer to you, Sam Renahan's book on the covenant theology, to, to explain what a covenant is and why covenants should define themselves. But it's also the leading cause to making it an absolute anomaly that a Baptist is a theonomist. Again, I have no qualms with Presbyterians. We're probably going to have a Presbyterian on in the podcast at some point. But for a Baptist to say upheld unless expressly stated otherwise, they are developing a slippery slope to land them into pedo-baptism. Well, children were mentioned in the Old Covenant. Children are nowhere denied from the New Covenant. Babies were included in the Old Covenant. Well, we don't see that abolished, expressly stated in the New Covenant. Therefore, babies must be in the New Covenant. A Baptist is not being consistent in his hermeneutical approach if he is says upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. But it's not just a Presbyterian Baptist issue because the Westminster also says this in their confession. And they recognize that the apostles gave us a hermeneutical system to use. And it is not, quote, upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. The second point, natural law. Natural law is divine law. This is not the dichotomy of natural law versus divine law, but it is natural law versus positive law. What is natural law? Is it just a philosophical term or philosophical understanding? The answer is no, it's not a philosophical understanding. Not just a philosophical term. It's a biblical term. If you're listening with your Bible open right now, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14, 15, and 16. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, Paul is essentially dealing with the condemnation of the world. Now, lest I get too deep into the context of Romans getting away from the scope of the podcast and have to stick my foot in my mouth. I'm not going to speak too much on that. I just want to get to the natural law dealings here. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
meaning even though they don't have the Mosaic law, they are law to themselves because they by nature do what the law requires. Now, some commentators, I have not found personally a commentator that says that we're dealing with Gentile Christians here. I have heard of other commentators do that, but I haven't read it for myself, so I don't want to misquote. It, 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 the issue may arise, okay, we might be dealing with Gentile Christians. Well, we're not. We're dealing with Gentiles as a whole, even Gentile unbelievers. It says they do not have the law, the Mosaic law, but by nature do what the law requires. As Douglas Moo points out in his great commentary on the book of Romans, the fact that Paul says, excuse me, by nature shows that we're not dealing with grace here. He could have been saying by grace they do what the law requires. We as Christians do what the law requires in a God-honoring, God-pleasing way by grace and not by nature. But by nature also we do the law not in a salvific spiritual way, not in a way that is necessary pleasing to God as a child of God. We're not offering up spiritual sacrifices in our obedience. Just by nature we're doing morally good things. And we know what morally bad things are. He says in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Some confusion may arise here. Is Paul talking about the new covenant, how God will, by his spirit, write the the law on the hearts of, of believers? And the answer is no. There's a small little subtle distinction here. He says the work of the law and not the law itself is written on their hearts. So there's the difference between natural law and new covenant writing of the law on the heart. He says the work they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What we see here, too, is that natural law is not the conscience. Now, theonomists start to have problems with natural law in the fact that it's not inscripturated law. I've quoted in the debate that you can go back and listen to several quotes from Bonson that shows that Bonson has an issue with any set of moral standards that are not written in the Bible. Now, Hear me out when I say this. I am not challenging and denying the sufficiency of Scripture. I'm reading to you the Bible, after all. And I'm showing you that the Scriptures sufficiently define a law that has not been written down on paper, but rather has been written on the hearts, the works of the law, that is, written on the hearts and on the conscience of man. Now, a theonomist will respond, well, the the natural law is the conscience and therefore is changing. Well, listen closely to the theonomist because this is another point that they are inconsistent on. In some places, they will say, yes, there is a natural law. But in other places, they'll say, well, it's it's changing, it's mutable, it's nothing more than the conscience. But Paul, if we're exiting the text, shows that the natural law is distinct from the conscience because it is written on the conscience. He does not conflate the two in the same thing in this passage. Where a theonomist gets gets their, their claim that natural law is the conscience, I don't know. 
That's not biblical. And that's not a biblical definition of conscience. Samuel Rutherford says, Who can deny that natural law is divine law? It's divine law because it was written, the works of it were written on the conscience of men by God. So when you have a baby, and the baby is born, the baby's not going to be thinking of morality (laughs) when he or she comes out of the womb. But the baby will get what theologians call innate knowledge. Part of that innate knowledge is right and wrong. Now, was the baby taught civil law? Did you teach that baby the Mosaic law? No. Yet that baby understands, and as it grows, it will see this more as its conscience and cognitive abilities increase. It will see more and more morals, rights, and wrongs without ever being taught the Mosaic law. Why is that? That's because God has instilled on every instinct in his image bearers, on every single instinctual tendency, every single person knows and understands the standard of God's righteous law because they have possession of the natural law. Now, the theonomist has put himself on an island. Unless it is Mosaic law, there is no standard. You'll hear them say over and over, by what standard? By what standard do you have justice? You have no standard of justice. You can't even know what justice is outside of the inscripturated law, and that's just not the case. By what standard? By God's law. But just because it's not inscripturated does not mean that it is not God's law. It is. Now, I believe that Paul is quoting and and is dealing with the moral law here if we're doing the bifurcation of the law, meaning moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. In other words, to speak it simply, even more simply than that, Paul is dealing here specifically, specifically with the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Because he uses the same language that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses recapitulates the Ten Commandments. And then he points out how God wrote those on tablets of stone. Well, God wrote the works of this natural law, same word used, on the tablets of stone and on the tablets of the conscience and the heart of all men. Are Jews any better off for having the law of Moses? The answer is no. Because Gentiles also show that they know the law. Now we start to get into positive law and natural law also. Does the natural law look line by line like the Mosaic law? No, it doesn't, and that uh, that's okay. But we recognize that the the Mosaic law had positive aspects that were intentionally and exclusively applied to the people of Israel. Natural law, though, is dealing with the Ten Commandments and is thus providing the standard for those who do not have the Mosaic law. Now, natural law also precedes Mosaic law. If if you're reading your Bible, it, it doesn't 
take a rocket scientist or a theologian for you to recognize that the Mosaic Law comes much later than creation. Well, what standard were the people dealing with before the Mosaic Law came? Does that mean that they did not have God's law yet? Now, this is where theonomists can start to get wobbly. The people before the Mosaic Law still had God's law. Because natural law is rooted in creation. You can read the confessions earlier on and see them recognize this. The same law that was written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty towards man. That's quoting chapter 19, paragraph 2 of the Second London Baptist Confession. The civil law is positive law applied exclusively to the people of Israel. Because it is positive law, it is not rooted in nature. See, remember, it's not natural law versus divine law. It is natural law versus positive law. Anything not rooted in the very nature of man. Anything not instilled in the very character, in the very essence of a person is positive law. So natural law versus positive law. The civil law was not written on the hearts of men. Now the general equity thereof was. And I want to get back to general equity here. Natural law is the foundation for general equity. Now, theonomists don't want natural law because natural law is not inscripturated law. But then on the other hand, they do want general equity. Well, if you read William Perkins defining general equity, if you read the Puritans, if you read the Reformed theologians define general equity, you realize that they are talking about principle. Well, is that principle standard? Is that principle law? Yes. Where does it come from? What does it stand on? It doesn't stand on philosophy or abstracts. Rather, it stands on God's law. But it's not written in the text. We have to see the thing that transcends over that civil law to find the, the, the moral aspect of it. It's rooted in natural law. William Perkins defines general equity as this. Judicials of common equity are such as are made according to the law of instinct or nature common to all men and these in respect of their substance binding. In other words, common equity made according to natural law. We shouldn't deny natural law. There's no reason to. It's biblical, and it gives us the foundation for general equity. But theonomists have to deny natural law in order to uh, consistently maintain both their theory and their practice. They want to maintain their theory that outside of the Bible, outside of the Mosaic Law, there's no standard for right and wrong, and then there's no knowledge of right and wrong, which, again, that's unbiblical, and that's not accurate because Paul says in Romans chapter 132, though they know God's righteous decree, that is, those who don't have the Mosaic Law, 
But also, if we have natural law, then that changes how we apply repentance. Changes how we preach. It changes what we do in the civil realm. When we go to the abortion mills and we're calling out the sin of the volunteers who work at the abortion mills, we're telling them to repent. When we are dealing with our magistrates, we are understanding that they know the Ten Commandments, that they have moral right and wrong. And if we are teaching them, and if we are remind, if we're teaching them, let's just say, of the law, we're teaching them something that is rooted in the things that they already know. Now, you'll hear a theonomist say this. We must teach the magistrates. We must teach them God's law. Thus says the Lord. We must show them the standard. The Apostle Paul shows and teaches that they already know the standard. It's kind of like putting dirt on top of dirt. Kind of like putting a piece of paper on another piece of paper. In this case, there's just no need for it. We are not required to teach the magistrates the law. Which, you know, again, using the apostolic application as we use the apostolic interpretation, the apostles never told us to teach the magistrates the law. In fact, Paul says he already knows right and wrong that the magistrate is the servant of the Lord, has this innate standard of good and evil. He submitted himself to Caesar, who did not have the Mosaic law. But we don't teach them something that they already know. Well, they suppress natural law, theonomists might say. Well, does, do you think they're not going to suppress Mosaic law? We're in agreement that they suppress the law. The issue is not suppression, and the issue is not their seared conscience. Well, their seared conscience leads to the issue, and that is they knowingly rebel against God's law. That's it. When you go to the volunteer at the abortion mill, you preach to them, and you start off with their sin and you point out their sin and you say you know God's righteous decree you know in spite of you ever reading the Mosaic law you've probably never even heard of civil law we live in the Bible belt so you've they've probably heard of the Bible maybe they've even opened it up a time or two but have not studied the Mosaic law yet we can preach to them that they know the righteous moral standard and that they rebel against it and they are in need of the gospel. They need Christ. They need his salvation. I want to be clear here. They don't need Mosaic law. They already have the Mosaic law written on their hearts. Now, they don't have all of the civil ceremonial um, uh, moral law written on them. They have the Ten Commandments, the 
the Ten Commandments rooted in the very creation of all things, given by God himself on their minds, in their hearts. And they understand that they are rebelling against the general equity of the civil law. When it comes to politics, you go to politics, and natural law is relevant for politics because, in short, I'm not going to spend too much time on this either. I still have one more point that I would like to get to. A magistrate, a governor of Arkansas, knows the law, knows God's righteous standard, and he therefore can make generally equitable laws based off of that. And it might not look exactly like the civil law, but it's still rooted in God's law. Therefore, it could be just equitable laws. Do we think that the servant of God, the the magistrate, the the governing authority in Romans chapter 13, um, do we think that he did not have laws that didn't look exactly like the Mosaic law? Well, we would be fooling ourselves if we thought that he did. What about Caesar? You know, Paul chose to appeal to Caesar rather than to the people who had the Mosaic law. Did Caesar have the Mosaic Law? Did he have laws that looked exactly like the civil law for Israel? No. But Paul still submitted himself to him. I want to read to you a few quotes concerning politics that the Reformers give us, that even some of the Confessors give us when it comes to natural law leading to civil laws that look different than Israel's civil law. John Calvin says this, Equity as it is natural cannot be the same in all, and therefore ought to be proposed by all laws, according to the nature of the thing enacted. As constitutions have some circumstances on which they partly depend, there is nothing to prevent their diversity, provided they all alike aim at equity as their end. Wherever laws are formed after this rule, Directed to this aim and restricted to this end, there is no reason why they should be disapproved by us, however much they may differ from the Jewish law or from each other. You can see other Reformed theologians say things like this, The magistrate is obligated in the administration of the commonwealth to the proper law of Moses so far as moral equity or common natural law are expressed therein. There's other things that I can't get to with the time that I have. Theonomists sometimes reject the bifurcation of the law. Now, I, personally, I can't figure out if they do or if they don't. And I, I think that they do, but maybe it's just a different bifurcation between ceremonial and moral rather than be a ceremonial civil or a ceremonial moral, and civil law. So they would just have two sections instead of three. But to start with, they reject bifurcation of the law. I ask for consistency here. If you reject bifurcation of the law, that's okay because we still have moral law. If you did away with all of the law of Moses, 
If you said that all of the law of Moses was intended specifically for Israel, you still have moral law. Moral law is rooted in nature itself, given by God. So if you did with all, did away with all of the inscripturated law found in the first five books of the Bible, you still have moral law. So if we go to Acts chapter 15 and we see that the apostles said um, that if they, if they realized that the Pharisees wrongly tried to get the Gentiles to, to observe circumcision and the law of Moses, if we see that phrase law of Moses to be all of the law, no bifurcation, not seeing somehow that that's just talking about the ceremonial and the civil, but all of it. We still have natural law. We still have God's righteous standard. So there is some grave inconsistency with theonomy, specifically on natural law, which is why I believe natural law is the second fatal flaw to theonomy. When they deny natural law, which is a biblical doctrine, and the word for word in the Bible, well, concept word for word, when they do away with natural law, they are doing away with general equity. They cannot borrow from general equity. And then number two, because they deny natural law, they find themselves in a world of trouble when they reject bifurcation of the law when reading how the the apostles interpreted the Mosaic law. Do you see the connection here? It again goes back to the apostles interpretation of the law. They used natural law in interpreting the old covenant and the old covenant law. And in short, the reason that natural law is the second fatal flaw to theonomy is this. Theonomists take too much away from God's law and give too much to, all, to man's law. Theonomists say that natural law is autonomy. It's self-law. It's pagan law. It's Roman Catholic law. And it's not working out for us. Theonomists take too much away from God's law and give too much, or sorry, take too much away from God's law and give too much to self-law. Point number three, the fatal flaw to theonomy. The third fatal flaw to theonomy is the confusion of covenants, rather also the conflation of covenants. Greg Bonson is being consistent with himself when he comes up with the doctrine of corporate punishment. You can read in chapter 23 of Greg Bonson's Theonomy book something that he calls corporate guilt, which essentially says if there is ongoing unrepented sin in our land, we will be held accountable for that. We will be punished. We will suffer the consequences for that. I want you to notice how he is conflating the church with the unbelievers here. Because we are in the same land, God considers among the same people, spiritually speaking. If there is 
sin in our land. For example, if there is abortion in our land, we as Christians will be held accountable for that. Because unbelievers are uh, abort murdering their babies, we are suffering the consequences to that. And he clarifies his misunderstanding here when he um, uses some proof text from the Old Covenant to show that. And I don't have the proof text list, listed. Um, I cannot say the word listed. Um, but he uses proof text in the Old Covenant that showed that the people of Israel had sin in the land of Israel. Therefore, all of Israel suffered the consequences for that. There's a huge issue here. First off, God considers us distinct from unbelievers. Second off, when you start to pancake out the old covenant into the new covenant, and all of a sudden everybody is in the covenant community, then it leads to us having corporate guilt. Now, I want to tell you that the first issue is, that's a social justice warrior heyday. Social justice warriors love that doctrine. They teach it all the time. Because there is racism in our land, we are all suffering. The church is suffering. And which some theonomists now, I would say, I have to bring it up, some theonomists now would say that um, the, the church's sin or the church's mistakes lead to the world's mistakes. Speaking in light of um, Brother Farley, I believe that's his last name, saying that because Baptists do not baptize their children, transgenderism is in the world. But not to get too down the rabbit hole. Social justice warriors would have a heyday if they heard Greg Bonson in a lecture saying the things that he says in chapter 23. Let me be utterly clear. The church is not held accountable for the sin of unbelievers. Now hear me out. The church must speak against the sin in our culture by preaching the gospel to our culture. Greg Bonson says, because God deals with respect to corporate guilt, we must take it upon ourselves to demand obedience in every realm of society. Page 459. He says, we must exhort society and national leaders as well as all individual citizens to obey the righteous law of God. Then health can return to a torn and troubled land. So what's the solution to a wicked culture, to a wicked, tattered land that we live in? Greg Bonson says, demanding them be obedient to the law of Moses. What is the problem that we have nowadays is that we don't follow the law of Moses, that the unbeliever does not follow the law of Moses. He could not be more wrong. Could not be more wrong. There is sin in the land because they are disobeying the law of God. The solution, first off, is not for us to teach them the law of Moses. We've already established they have the law. The solution is not necessarily to demand obedience. We still would just have unregenerate moral people solution is for the church to preach the gospel and to pray for the salvation of souls well cole you're you're confusing the the church realm with the civil realm no greg bonson is 
I am dealing with what Greg Bonson is saying. See, even as citizens outside of the church, we are still Christians and have Christian solutions to unchristian problems. The solution is never legislation. Let me ask you this. Was the, was the solution legislation for the people of Israel? Tell me how that went for them. Was the teaching of God's law the solution for the wickedness of Israel? Tell me how that worked out for them. The problem was that they had uncircumcised hearts. The problem was that they were unsaved, did not have the law of God, not just the natural law, the new covenant law written on their hearts. I want to simplify this to what the Word of God says. Are we dealing with corporate guilt here? Are we to confuse the covenants and conflate the covenants here the way that Greg Bonson did? No. He says, let me say this, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Where are we to, or who are we to purge from among us? Those who claim to be Christians in our living, sinful, unrepentant lives. Are we to disassociate from those who are outside of the church who may be sexually immoral? No, because we'd have to separate from the whole world, Paul says. But it's those within the church that we are not dealing with that we'll be held accountable for. Now, the apostles, again, interpretation, hermeneutical system, let's let the apostles give us that. The apostles show us that we are not held accountable for the sin of those outside of the church. Rather, we are held accountable for the sin of those inside of our church, which is why we must have church discipline. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Is he talking about the society? Is he talking about the nation? If you don't leaven out the, the leaven from your nation, the whole lump is going to be leavened. No. A little leaven leavens the whole lump within the church. We will have people who are disobedient to God's law. Are we suffering the consequences for that? No. Unless they're within our church. Our Lord is speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Does the, he tell them to command repentance of the people outside of the church lest they lose their lampstand? No. He tells them to 
Remove the leaven from the lump within their walls. Tells one church, don't even tolerate the sexual immorality within you, or you will lose your lampstand. Now, sexual immorality is the breaking of God's law. Are we suffering the consequences for those outside of it? You got my answer. No. The third fatal flaw to theonomy is the conflation of covenants and the misunderstanding that when the Lord was speaking to Israel, that we're dealing with a covenant people here. And that comes into play. Israel is not a cosmos of the world that we are dealing with now. It's actually a cosmos of the church. Now, there we have it. In sum, three fatal flaws to theonomy as I'm waiting for D2 to arrive. Number one is a hermeneutical system. They do not allow the apostles to give them a hermeneutical system, and the apostles do. So if you're just listening to a theonomist, and, and they're coming to you, and they're saying, oh, God's law is, you know, theonomy just means God's law, and da-da-da-da-da, and then they're going to turn around and tell you to, to adopt the interpretive system that says, upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. You must tell them by what standard the Bible gives us the interpretive system the Bible does not teach unle- upheld unless expressly stated otherwise. Rather, the Bible teaches what we find in our confession in paragraph 4. That the apostles upheld a natural law, the natural law, which is synonymous with moral law, the Ten Commandments. And they understood that it was rooted in nature. And then when they went back to the civil law, they interpreted that to find the general equity of that law and did not apply a grammatical, historical approach to it. Doing such would require a literal application. It's just not what we see. So number one, hermeneutical system. Number two, the second fatal flaw to theonomy is that they reject natural law. And again, if they're rejecting natural law in some sense, they're cutting out their own feet from under them. Many of them want general equity, but you can't have general equity without natural law. And they want, and they don't want natural law because it's not inscripturated written law. It's not found necessarily in the Bible always. But the Bible teaches us that there is an unwritten divine law, which is natural law. And it's a fatal flaw because they're giving too much away to self-law and they're taking too much away from God's law. And even though they don't, they reject a bifurcation of the law, they still have to deal with that rejection in the New Testament. If you want to reject the bifurcation of the law, be consistent. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 that says, He abolished the law by abolishing the law of commandments expressed through ordinances. And then number three, theonomists inevitably, inevitably do away with or inevitably conflate the law. They conflate the covenants. They don't recognize that there is a distinction between the church and and the people who are not in the church. Now, I know I'm probably going to be accused of having a misunderstanding of 
sphere sovereignty or anything like that. It, it really has nothing to do with sphere sovereignty. They threw that out the window. Bonson threw that out the window when he was dealing with corporate guilt. Now, we're, we're doing these on the same day, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop this right here. I want this to be a shorter podcast that I'm probably going to upload on my own time. Um, again, this does it doesn't this podcast does not serve as a recap to the debate that I had recently. Uh, I may upload it at a different time. It, it's just simply to get the point out there clear. The enemy is rising in our day, and we have to have a response.